Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today feels like one of those writers who both writes what she knows and writes to find something else out. Mona Simpson is the best-selling author of seven novels, including Anywhere But Here, The Lost Father, A Regular Guy, Off Keck Road, My Hollywood, Casebook, and most recently, Commitment. Commitment is set in 1970s California about the lives of three coming-of-age siblings, Walter, Lena, and Donnie who were abandoned as children by their Afghan father and then in their teens by their mom when she's committed to a state hospital in the wake of crippling depression. There are some biographical elements from Mona's own life in the novel. Her father was an immigrant from the Middle East and she, like Walter, did attend Berkeley. I think her mom did battle some mental health issues and she grew up in and lives in LA. But unlike her characters, Mona was raised as an only child and only knew of her brother after she was grown. Her mother, I don't believe, was committed, and who knows the relationship she might have had with siblings in the house. So in many ways, as we'll talk about today, commitment might be described as a as a what-if novel. So we'll talk about constructing what-if novels and writing multiple points of view. We'll chat about maintaining momentum in a novel's middle. Writers tell me they often hate middles. Bringing bygone eras back to life, breathing life into your characters, playing the role of psychologist as a writer, and much more. We'll also hopefully talk agents, publishing, how the industry has changed over the years. Mona studied poetry at Berkeley. She got an MFA from Columbia. During grad school, she published her first short stories in Plowshares, the Iowa Review, and Mademoiselle. She worked as an editor at the Paris Review for five years, and she's won so many of those big named writing awards and grants that we all hear about. She also teaches at UCLA, so she knows this industry from a lot of different angles, and hopefully we'll get to talk about a lot of that. Mona Simpson, welcome back. Thank you. So I realized, I was saying right before we got on air, I realized it's been 13 years now since we last talked, which was for My Hollywood, and I thought 2011 was a couple of years ago, but it turns out, no, no, it was not. So we have a lot to catch up on. But I thought before we dive into commitment, I don't think we talked last time about your origin story as a writer. And with all these current debates about higher education and its cost and its worth, and given that your path included studying poetry and getting an MFA and working as an editor and teaching, I just wonder if you have some retrospective wisdom on the things that made a difference for you in your career, like what impact the MFA had, kind of what twigs in your writing nest proved to be kind of the most essential? Mm, that's a great question. And and one that's hard to answer. I, For me, I think the biggest great luck I had was going to college and going, falling into such a great college. I went to Berkeley. I was a California resident. As it happened, Something that happened to me, I put into this novel, which was that my mother had been told upon my birth by my Syrian grandfather, or she remembered being told that he would cover my college, my education. Mm. Now, by the time I was 17 years old and applying to colleges in California, we had not been in touch. This man who promised this was dead, and we had not been in touch with that family for years. And nonetheless, I didn't apply for financial aid. It was it was absolutely childish. I said, Mom, do I do I need to 
applied for financial aid. She said, no, that's taken care of. And I kind of believed it. So I got to Berkeley and basically, even though it was, it was fairly inexpensive, but I was living in a dorm that was, that was expensive and my mom couldn't afford it. And the punitive Syrians whom she, she hoped would step in didn't materialize. And so I actually, I actually went to the financial aid office and said, could I apply? And eventually I got to the director of financial aid's big opulent office and he talked to me for a little bit and he read some of my writing. By now it was sort of spring quarter of my freshman year. And he basically rubber stamped my scholarship and I, I got a scholarship. And for me, actually just being able to study what I was interested in for four years was was an amazing gift. And mm-hmm. and I just I just wish everyone could have that. I mean, most of my students now come to college with with a lot of anxiety about what they'll do afterwards and finding a hireable degree. But I think it's such a permanent gift to allow people to discover what they really care about and what their what their idiosyncratic interests are and what what lights them up. So I'm I'm forever grateful for that. And graduate school was was great too. I mean it was two years to sort of do exactly what you wanted with with people who were also trying to do that without without worrying about the job market or or were you going to be able to make a living at this or, or any of that. Do you recommend that to people now? I mean, I know you teach at, at UCLA. People, if, they, if they're thinking, should I get an MFA or should I not? I always say, well, what would you be doing instead? Because if you were going to have a great adventure that thrills you, then I, I would recommend the great adventure. It, it just depends. Some people are, you know, people write from so many different sources. So the challenge is to find your own source. Yeah, which kind of brings me to the question of, how you live in the world as a writer separate and apart from your writing practice. I know you have, you know, a daily writing practice, but I'm wondering if there are things that you make a habit of doing apart from that. I mean, I suppose reading would be one example, but just in the way you are in the world, like if you carry a notebook to make observations or if you find other Parts of your life are woven through with the idea of looking for story or, or searching for story, or if you kind of compartmentalize and keep those two aspects of your life pretty separate from each other. No, I don't feel like I want to compartmentalize too much. I like to I like to actually be in my project enough or in in my work enough that everything else I'm doing in the world, I'm still sort of alert to things that might work for my the project I'm in. So and in fact, that's I sometimes notice that 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 it it matters to me that I do have a daily writing practice, but of course, like all of us, there's there's a couple of days where you don't get the, the amount of time you would like. But for me, if I can sort of just get in and touch it, if I just sort of touch it and read it, and even if I'm not progressing further in in the work, in the story or the novel, even if I don't generate progress in it or or pages. If I'm in it to some extent, then whatever else I'm doing, I'm still sort of alert for things that could work for my story. I'm sort of I'm sort of looking for things in that way. In that, I think you could sort of carry around a net. I've got my net open for things that could work. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I do think if you put your characters up on a shelf for too long, 
you can kind of forget, right? You lose touch with the daily lives of who these people are. And I think there's there's a way in which it's not a very high mark, but there is sort of a watermark that if you just don't go to it at all in a day, you're going to have that day out in the world and you won't be thinking of it. But if you if you're in it even for 40 minutes, you know, or a half hour, that might be enough to just tip you over into thinking of it the whole day while you're doing your errands and you're you're sort of alert for observations or nuances that could be grabbed like a butterfly for your for your work. Or even kind of moving through the world through the point of view of a character and saying, you know, what would she be buying if she was at the grocery store right now? You know, right. what would yeah. How would he see this jerk on the street? So I introduced the novel sort of, but I think I did sort of an incomplete job. So I was wondering if if you could sort of take us a little bit deeper into commitment and into these characters' lives a little bit and lay the foundation, and then we can jump off from there to use the novel as sort of a teaching technique for a lot of these great writerly things that you did. <laughs> Thank you. I think of it, commitment is a novel about mental illness, but in a way, the mental illness is in the background. It's it's about the many people that, that mental illness affects, especially the people who love the person who's suffering. So this is really about the three children of a woman who falls into a debilitating depression and how they manage and how they also manage within the system that was in place at that time. There's a woman who falls into this depression and she has to go into a state mental health hospital. And she does this at a time in the 70s when just when mental health hospitals were still there and still functioning, but they were beginning to be emptied out. With the 60s, with um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, there began to be a feeling in society and also a, a congressional bill signed by by JFK, actually the last piece of legislation he he signed which was the Community Mental Health Act, which was to empty out these big, huge state mental health hospitals. And, and I think when we think of them, we think of them as pernicious places, which were, which didn't treat people well. But I was very influenced and affected by an essay by Oliver Sacks about a, a memoir of his years working in Bronx State Hospital. And I also, that started me it, it was a positive sort of elegy for these places. And he quoted from a number of memoirs and accounts of people who'd been helped enormously and had been able to live productive and meaningful lives in these institutions. And so I then did a lot of research on my own. So I, I wanted to also contrast implicitly what was available then that might not be now. I think now if the, the character in my book had had a breakdown like this, she would not have been offered as gentle a place as she was in the book. Um, and it's about, it's also very much about these three siblings and how they manage. One is in college at the time it happens. Another is in high school, but she goes to college. And there's a way in which, you know, it's funny one is in college, one is in graduate school, and there's a there's a sort of leveling effect, but it's not really true. I mean, your life in college is very different if your mother is, or if someone you know you love, if one of your the central players in your life is in an institution or is dying or is facing 
a huge problem. So I also wanted to deal with that, like what it's like to go out on a date when in the natural course of things, you'll be asked sort of, well, what do your parents do? Well, in fact, my parent is in prison or my parent is in a mental health hospital. It's a very different configuration. That was really interesting to learn about the the Kennedy era, because I'd really always pinned all of this on Ronald Reagan. Kennedy started the legislation, but a lot of the refinement of how the money went to the states was done during the Reagan years. Got it. Okay, I think you're probably right. Yeah. Yeah. There were, I suppose, a confluence of events and and it's all in a continuum of shutting a lot of those hospitals down and, and now becoming so much more aware of mental health issues than we were back then. So it's interesting. I mean, I'm listening to all of the various doors in. I know novels when they're just still in the amorphous blob idea of what they're going to become, writers have to find a lot of different doors to get inside of them. And I'm I'm hearing those. Take me back to when you were first conceiving. So was it that essay, that Oliver Sacks essay that you first came upon that sparked this? Or tell me about the nest of gathering all the twigs together for this book and, and where they came from and kind of how they came. Sure. I was already writing a novel about siblings, um, which was definitely a what if, because I grew up as an only child. And so that's definitely an alternate life for me. And I was writing about siblings with a troubled parent, but the Oliver Sacks really made me decide to put her in an institution and see what that would mean. So that was very influential. Of course, like most good things you read, the Oliver Sacks essay led me to a, a bunch of other books about that era and institutions and memoirs of people who've been in institutions and chronicles of people who were abandoned by parents who went into institutions. So so that was its own business. But I also I also wanted to write about the family members and how they grew and thrived even so. As I'm looking back over all of your work, I wonder if it's fair to categorize a lot of these as what-if novels. Like, is that sort of a question that comes to you when you're thinking about a big project of, you know, my life was this way, but what what if, and we add in these different elements and then go down these paths of exploration, is that sort of a generative idea for you, that, that what-if idea? Mm, maybe. Maybe. I, I think so. Especially... I think that's one. I think there's there's lots of things that generate, you know, I think I think as one gets older it's also interesting to see what we see now versus what we felt at the time, you know, mm-hmm. and to impose that on on our characters and to think in terms of them. Yeah, it's such an interesting time to well, A, it's an interesting time to be alive. And B, you're right. I that that's what I love about writing is that it just gets richer and richer the older you get. It really does. It's something, I mean, we're so lucky not to be athletes or ballet dancers or something that really kind of depends on youth and depends on that first flush of energy and bodily perfection. I mean, it's it's just so great that exactly what life gives you is what you need as a fiction writer. We could all be, if we could all be, and we've been lucky in our, in our lifetimes too, with, with, as readers in that, People are living longer, and we got to read Alice Munro's late work and William Trevor's late work, and and actually their late work is their best work. Yes, 
know, I mean, yeah. imagine if we didn't have anything that Ellis Monroe or William Trevor wrote after the age of 60, it, it would be the very best work would be taken from us. Yeah, I was just talking to Louise Kennedy last week, and she didn't come to writing until her 50, you know, I mean, a little bit in her 40s, but really until her 50s. And she said, I just didn't really have anything to say. You know, I didn't think about it and have anything to say until then. And, you know, it comes out astonishing. And she's just got this full life of lived, amazing, crazy experiences. And yeah, you get to share that with people. So I do like to say, even if you haven't been writing since your 20s, of course, it gets better and better. And time at task is a wonderful, great thing. But it's okay if you come to it a little bit later. You still have all that life experience. That's You might just skip some of the The angst. Some of the angst and the silliness. I think, you know, Penelope Fitzgerald, I think, started very late, didn't she? Maybe even in her 60s. 60s, yeah, right, right. And, And just leapt ahead of everyone else. So I think it could even be an advantage. Right. Well, you said something earlier about you were working on a novel of siblings before, and I was wondering how much your novels beget other novels. And if when you're writing something, you're like, okay, there's there's not room enough in here to explore this idea. But I'm, I'm wondering if writing is generative or, you know, sometimes I hear, oh, I threw everything into this book and I've got nothing left to say. I kind of hear it both ways. And I was curious about that, if you're writing produces and begets more ideas for later works. I sort of get, not necessarily from the writing, but I think almost out of, sometimes I get sick of what I'm writing, so I wish I were writing something else. So <laughs> so I'll write a little bit of that something else, and then sometimes when I'm finished with the thing I'm really doing, I'll go back to the little, I have lots of little things I'd like to write, but I'm in the middle of something, so I can't. So I do, I'm one of those people who will, I'm sure I'll die with many, many unfinished ideas in one's notebook, you know, in my notebook. There's also the things you want to write and the things you you can write. I mean, sometimes one is attracted to something, you know, but you start writing and it doesn't go anywhere, really. But I do have lots of ideas. Well, to pick up on that idea, how long into a project will you get before you decide this just doesn't have legs. And, you know, have you, I, as, do you have novels in the drawer that are really pretty fully complete manuscripts that just didn't make it off the ground? I try not to do that. I try and, um, even if I have to cut out, you know, 80% of it or something, I try to find what I wanted to do there. You know, I've tr- I try to find the impulse and see what I meant by that and get to that in some way. So, I mean, I have some stories that were once going to be novels or, you know, I've had things that lay around on the computer for a long time and maybe get resurrected, but I don't have full long novels that I've worked on for years and years that that I haven't published. Thank God. I hate it. (laughs) Do you? No, I mean, I have so many fragments of things, but yeah, I haven't gotten... I mean, I've, well, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages into something. And then I'm like, I mostly it's because I just don't have the experience necessary, either the writerly experience or the life experience necessary. I'm like, I, this is a novel I'd like to read, but I'm not the person to to execute on it. Somebody so. else has to write it. I've had that feeling yeah. too. Well, speaking of that, and to dive more into this, as I mentioned, I mean, you really feel like you had to be 
I think every writer to an extent has to be a psychologist to unlock characters' motives and desires and all of that. But in this novel in particular, you really had to you really had to do that because there's a particular dynamic in families of either alcoholics or addiction or abuse or in this case mental illness. There's a family dynamic that sets in and birth order, you know, birth order of siblings sets in, which I saw a lot of in here that you have to understand your characters, but you also have to understand all of those kind of entrenched dynamics that are generally in play and not make them too stereotypical or cliche. So it requires a lot of knowledge of psychology, human nature, and writerly finessing. And I was wondering, before we get to the the research of other parts of this novel, which I want to talk about, just that nugget of psychological research and how you tackled that element of it. It's funny you say that, um, because I think that almost all of us, do, do you feel this, Ari? I almost feel that being a writer or being a psychologist, that the same kind of people go into both fields. Yes. Yeah. In other words, people who, who are most interested in people and in, in not just in people, but in not the external trajectories of their lives, but the personal dimension of life. I think Alan Gorganis once wrote that, you know, history is gossip. Well, fiction is 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 a is a form of gossip too. It's not it's not gossip about real people, but it's 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 an interest in the personal, in the deep personal decisions that we all, you know, we all hold our personal lives incredibly closely in in reality. I mean, what do we care about most? We care about our personal lives. And that's that's what comes comes into play in fiction. And so, I, probably everybody who's a fiction writer has spent their life already being fascinated by and studying how people act, how people feel, why people do what they do, all these mysterious, paradoxical situations that we find ourselves in. So I think that 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 is, and and I do read a lot of books by psychologists and you know, psychoanalytic theory and, and all that. I find it fascinating. It's it's just fun. Um, so I think we're all kind of part of one tribe. Yes. All a little wounded. I mean, who isn't? But yeah. all. A little, yeah. I think that's yeah. true. I, I have a friend who, who believes that the kind of conversations that writers love to have that go on and on and on and on and on is, is almost a, a result of damage. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think that it's it's definitely a tendency. Did you have to, beyond this, consult with either psychologists or psychiatrists and uh, you know, I did. I did. get a little blessing from them? <laughs> yes, I definitely did. And I also wanted to know sort of what was real. I, I was sort of basing this, I, I was basing the mother's breakdown on someone I, I didn't know well, but who had weirdly seemed to be quite functional for a long time. And then when, in in her case, when her children went, went away to school, just fell into an abyss and never, never got out of it. After having had decades of being fairly responsible and busy. And so, and I didn't know this person well. So I, so I kind of imagined my character and then I wanted to make sure that this was plausible. So I, I did talk to a number of psychiatrists. And did you make the decision early on? So we we are really rooted in these three children's points of view. And did you choose those 
points of view and know it was going to be roving between the three kids all the way along? Did you play with other points of view or did you consider telling it only from one of these siblings' points of view? Tell me a little bit about that choice. I knew I didn't want just one. I wasn't sure if I would have two or three. And at one point I had the mothers too, but I I finally decided not to. I was curious about whether you ever played with the mother or with Julie. Julie's a wonderful character in here who we, I don't think we've mentioned her yet, but she sort of swoops in. She's a friend of Diane's who takes care of the kids um, to the best of her capacity. And she's a wonderful character too. And yeah, I was ever, I was wondering if you ever played with Diane or with Julie and wrote at least wrote pages from their points of view. I definitely did pages from Julie's and, and they're still sort of in the book. They're just they're just through other people talking to Julie, but there's there's a lot of Julie in there. There is, yeah. And yeah, I couldn't quite I I, th- I thought it wasn't right to have the mother in for some reason. I I thought it should really be all about her, but not with her. Mm-hmm. As it so often is with these people who are damaging to us, right? It's all about them. Even if they're off stage and even if they're dead, you know, it's still it's mostly all about them, which is Yeah, and I was sort of interested in in the in their in the children's trajectory, you know, and what what coming into adulthood would mean for them. Did I hear at some point you got a note from your editor back about Lena's character that yes. she was a bit flat or something? Yes, at one point she felt Lena, there wasn't as much of Lena. And at that point, she said she wasn't sure she felt Lena had a soul. So Uh I worked like another year on Lena. I was wondering when you get a note like that back from an editor, what do you do with that? After you after you cry, that's what I would do and get out of bed. (laughs) Because it's, it's a big note, right? To say, you know, that your character doesn't have a soul. And so I'm wondering just how you take that note and what you how you go about it, how you go about solving that problem, because I assume she doesn't really give you advice on how to solve it. She just observes it and then leaves it to you. Say, first of all, that this was an editor I've worked with for many, many years over many, many books. So I, I trust her instincts. And I don't know, usually what she says seems to resonate to me. So I usually don't feel resistance. But um, sadly, this is my editor many, many years has just retired, which will be a, an enormous loss. But I don't know. I think I think for me, if I get a suggestion or a criticism or a, a response from a reader, it depends. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily change something unless when I thought about it, it really, I felt, yes, that's right. That needs work. Or mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it, so it's, it's usually... If I have an immediate response that yes, that's that's a problem, or that's that's a pressure point that I need to give attention to, I will. If it because you know, I mean, I think that any one book could be any number of books. I mean, the books can go in many different directions, and I'm not a big believer in you know necessarily taking every suggestion or every thought. Yeah, tell me a little bit though about how you went about addressing that. So was it a lot of writing from Lena's point of view to unlock her? Yeah, I did a lot of thinking. I probably did a lot of thinking about her and a lot of writing that's not even in the book, but just so I really understood her fully. I didn't want her to just kind of be reactive to her brothers, mm-hmm. to her mother. I wanted to sort of get at what was specific to really what, what was the essence of Lena and what is, and and her even just being the same gender as her mother 
I think her relationship to her mother's mental illness was different than her brother's. Her, her older brother felt extremely close to her, his mom and protective, but he never, for example, it never occurred to him that he too would suffer from what his mother was suffering from. His only thought was how he could make money to make sure that the family stayed afloat and also to see if he could give his mother some sort of better life. But he didn't feel, as Lena did, that maybe the same thing would happen to her, that maybe somehow the, the mental illness was inside her and would express itself later. That's why I was so interested that it was Lena that you got this note back on, because, yeah, I think there's so much to that. I think there's so much to the same-sex relationships that we have. And you as writer, the same-sex relationship with this character, because I talk to a lot of writers who say the characters who confound them the most are the most biographically similar, and, you know, especially gender-wise, you know, that I can write men really easily. I can put myself in that headspace, but writing women is just a little bit trickier. And I, I'm really interested in that. And so I thought, yes, of these three points of view, two being male, and all of the complications that you have of worrying about, yes, this inheritance of mental illness if you're the same-sex child and I was wondering, yeah, if that contributed to some of those writerly blocks around her, because I, I do think that's an, an, a really interesting observation. Yeah, no, I think all of that came out when I when I explored her more. In a way, it was it's sort of an ensemble piece, and I I kind of started with the larger blocks, but then I had to, in a way, pull the novel apart and think of each character alone for a while. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because it is very tapestry-like, you know, with the with the uh, meandering points of view between them. I mean, sometimes we spend long sections with one over the other, but but if you yourself in doing the writing process spent, you know, inordinate amounts of time with one character before turning to the other and then structurally went back to weave them together. I think I started by by doing the externals of the composition of the tapestry and then I had a sort of pull apart each one and and think think in a way about their lives even even past and outside of the parameters of the novel just to fully know them We'll be back with more from Mona Simpson and Commitment in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A quick prompt to check out our Patreon page if you are enjoying this show, if you enjoy these behind-the-scenes chats of how some of these books get made, or if anything that you've heard has helped you in your own publication life, you can check us out there. Any amount helps us out, and we reward you with little tips, uh, writing prompts, some things from our authors when they're provided. Kind of a fun way to support the show and a fun way for us to keep in touch with you. Again, any amount helps us out. Patreon.com slash writers on writing is how you find us. Let's get back to it with Mona Simpson talking about commitment. You know, one of the things about switching points of view, and I was talking about the the problem of middles that I talk to for a lot of writers who just, they hate middles. They're like, I, I start strong. I know where I'm going. I know the ending. But ugh, those middles are, you know, saggy. And I thought doing the the um, 
point of view switching is one really wonderful solution to that. I think for a lot of writers, it really feels like you can shore up the middle because you have so many different balls in the air of what's going on in these characters' lives and, you know, the different paths they're taking. And so that seems like one way that you can, I don't know what your experience of middles. I think that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, just being able to to switch heads, I think is good for both reader and writer and true to what the characters are going through. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of exciting, I think, to to be in one in one trajectory and then be utterly removed to another for a while. Were there other characters, any problems with Walter or Donnie that you had to work at unpacking and, and how did you confront those? I'm sure there were lots of little problems, but there's always lots of little problems. <laughs> yes. That's kind of what we do every day is we solve these little <laughs> solve problems. little problems, right. right. Um, and that's the fun of it, I guess, too. Uh, but yes, I think there were. But I think Donnie the least, but mm. I definitely had problems with Walter and worked on him. Do you say Donnie is the least biographical from you? Because Donnie went to Berkeley. I mean, Walter went to Berkeley and it sounds like some of his financial concerns at the beginning mirrored some of the things that you were going through. Well, although his mind is, I, I think I think my, my emotional makeup is more like Lena's or Donnie's and uh, Walter's confidence and his go-to-ness is, is, I think he's the character probably that I would think is most unlike me. Mm. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, the physical descriptions of characters. It's so funny because I feel like at the end of a novel, I know these characters inside and out and we're friends and, you know, I know what they would think, but I often still am hard pressed to kind of conjure up an image of them in my head. And then I think, who you know, kind of who cares? And I was ri- talking to a writer the other day, and she's like, yeah, I really, I even I can't really picture these characters, and even I don't care. And most of her books have been made into movies, and they're on screen. Well, that's, um, that's very funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought, given that they're on screen, she would be sort of writing with that in mind, but the answer was absolutely not. But then I was, you know, so I went back and I was looking at the introductory remarks that we get about Walter and Lena. And Walter, we get right from page one, he thought of himself as a slender pin that kept the machinery of his family ticking. And I thought, well, that doesn't give me a physical description of him, but now I, I just know this guy. I just know what makes him tick and, and what motivates him. And I was wondering of that for you, like how important being able to picture these people is versus their emotional makeup and communicating that to the reader? Hmm. That's a good question. I think with some characters, it matters more than others. You know, I mean, I think even as with people in life, there's some people to whom they're, you know, if they're extraordinarily beautiful or if they feel they're unusually unattractive, either of those things being exceptional in any way on that, spectrum can make can make it a preoccupation for for a person. So I think it differs with different characters. Actually as you're saying that I'm thinking now of Lena and yeah we do get more of her physicality as she's getting into college and coming out yeah that's true. I feel like it it depends on the character but I mean I think one is most interested usually in in a character's sort of internal life but then some people's internal life is composed of a lot of anxiety about their external, about what they look like or how they, how other people respond to them. You know, that can vary. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about 
the structuring of the book. So, so did you do a lot of character exploration before you sat down to write it straight through? And then did you write it straight through? I think I wrote it more or less. I mean, I kind of write and then I go back and then I write a, a little further out and then I go back. And so I'm sort of always going back, but I wrote it in that one step forward, two steps back fashion straight through, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, and then, and then afterwards, of course, I went back in and and did a lot as well. And did you know where you were going? Did you kind of? We won't give away the end, but did you know that was the end point that you were writing towards? I didn't know exactly, but then you know it sort of became. I, I would say the ending kind of wrote itself. That's I a think, good thing. Yeah, I think it often does because it's sort of like it's almost like you wind something up and the options are closing, and and it it becomes almost inevitable. I was just going to say, I think that's what writers strive for is I hear it phrased as shocking inevitability. And you want, you want to be surprised, but you also want it to feel like, of course it couldn't have happened any other way. Yeah. I think that's right. So that is something because I'm, I'm always interested in how writers get into and get out of books and, you know, choosing the point of entry, the point of entry for this was Walter going off to college and, this is sort of this is sort of his mother's last motherly act is driving him to college and finding finding the door in and finding that door in through Walter and then exiting where you exit was that always the door in to the book i think that was always the door in i think that's what what i started with but i knew that a big deal would be what was happening to his siblings back home for him as well i mean i knew that for him as well that would be a big preoccupation. Yeah. I was also thinking of the shape of this. I've been thinking about shape versus structure, which I think are kind of two different things. That's interesting. Tell me your thoughts about that. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking a lot on the show. We, I had this writer, Jane Allison, on who wrote this book's Meander Spiral Explode about the different shapes novels could take outside of the traditional fry tag, you know, rising action mm-hmm. conclusion. And then I've been talking to a lot of, especially women writers, that that structure just necessarily doesn't work for them. And they work in either more of a circular pattern or an explosive pattern. And so I've just been reading novels with that kind of idea in mind, separate and apart from the structure of the novel. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I was going to get your thoughts on on that for this. I mean, I, I could see a few different shapes at play. I, I was kind of thinking of this in more circular ways because you you pass through sort of the same issues with your mother at different times of your life, but they're the same issues that you just have to keep dealing with and they present themselves in different ways at different times. Mm-hmm. And three characters doing that each for themselves in different ways at different times and and how it looks when they are confronted with the same monster again and again. So in that way, it kind of felt a little bit circular to me. I've heard other writers describe their novels as sort of these winding rivers, you know, that are going over rapids at certain points and then making sharp turns and going down falls and what, however they describe it. But I was wondering if you had given thought to the the shape of this. I like the idea that, and I, I really do believe it, two people if two people had the same parents, they didn't necessarily have the same parents, even if they had the same parents. Mm-hmm. Cause we're all different at different times and depending on where we are in our lives and our fortunes or misfortunes our our sorrows our our state of mind. There's a wonderful Alice Monroe story in which two siblings perceive 
a crucial event in their parents' lives completely differently. The, the one daughter believes that the mother was going to make a suicide attempt. The other one thought it was just one in a number of histrionic attempts to get the father's attention. You know, so the siblings see this this one act as completely different. So I sort of saw it as the central loss, this central sadness was that they've lost their beloved mother to this alienating illness. And so I, I sort of thought it you know, almost an object that's passed from one to the next to the next. So, I mean, I, I, I felt like the, the first section, although they were all in it, was still mostly Walter and the second was was mostly Lena and then the third was mostly Donnie. So I, I sort of almost like a, a relay. Yeah, I like that. It's so interesting to think of different ways to to structure novels outside of the traditional oh, ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think we always we all do it intuitively and then try and think afterwards what shape it is. Right. I mean, I don't know that you could set out to plan something and say, I'm gonna do a, you know, explosive novel and then, you know, try to oh. <laughs> try to figure it out. But yes, I think it's one of those things that you have to do in hindsight, led by intuition. I'd love to talk also about bringing LA in the 1970s to life. So you grew up here and you still live still live in Santa Monica. And I I do think it's interesting to talk to writers about living in a place and of a place and writing about it while you're still in it versus having to get some distance from it, either geographically or time-wise. And here you're getting time distance from it, but not geographic distance from it. And all of the things that go into bringing the 1970s back to life from dialogue to cultural touch points to, you know, Walter's kind of hitchhiking now and then or kind of flirting with hitchhiking or just things that were present then that are present now. Tell me a little bit about that. And if it was weird to live in present day L.A. while writing about past L.A. It didn't seem so to me. I, I, I can see it that it could. I, I lived a long time outside of L.A. too. I, I went. I lived in New York for many, many years. But at the same time, I think that, I don't know, I think that L.A. is is special, especially as a place to write about. I mean, I feel like the L.A. I live in now has almost nothing to do with the L.A. I lived in then. <laughs> but I find L.A. fascinating anyway, literarily, because it's not been written about so much. There have definitely been a few great writers but it's not it's not like New York where almost every major literary writer that you know from the colonists on covered New York in some way <laughs> right but that's not true of LA and LA is such a different kind of a city I love LA and it's there's so many LA's I still don't even know or understand you know there's so many pockets of LA that are they're there to be mined did you go to Diane's bungalow or to Julie's apartment? Do you have those physical places in mind? And did you? I, I you know, I, I sort of had them in mind as places that I haven't literally, you know, that I would pass a place and I would think that's, you know, that's where she lives. Mm. Yeah, I definitely had certain houses in mind and certain apartment buildings. And, and, and I went to Metropolitan State Hospital in Norwalk. It's the closest state mental health hospital. So I did a lot of research there as well. Yeah, in terms of the research, I mean, we touched on that for the the psychological research, but there's a lot of architectural studies about 
how hospitals worked back in the 1970s, some architect that, you know, was really specifically designing some of these institutions, hospitals. There's a lot of research in here on a lot of different topics. I was wondering what kind of rabbit holes you had to go down for this and when you felt like you'd gotten to the bottom of them to the point where you felt the authority to write about them. I had a lot of fun. I mean, I loved reading those books about the early psychiatrists, about the, the sort of the founding of the of the profession and how that worked. And and especially this one man who who happened to have a gift for design as well. So he was a psychiatrist. He was a, you know, at, at that time, at the beginning, the psychiatrists didn't even call themselves psychiatrists. They were the, the, they were the administrators of these, of these hospitals. And he sort of sketched out what became the model for mental health hospitals all over America for these big state institutions. And he was very idealistic and they were, you know, he, he insisted upon beauty and, plenty of nature outside the windows. And he got very specific in terms of how the laundry was to be done. The most disruptive patients would be at, at the far ends of the corridors. I mean, he had it all worked out. And he, his institutions had, you know, patient-run theatrical productions and orchestras and libraries. So that was all very interesting. And then to see what state and state institutions are in now was fascinating and sad and sobering. Yeah. Were there other aspects that you felt like you had to, to research for this or was it? I did a lot of reading about architecture too, just because that was <laughs> yeah, that was interest and, and, and some about the art world in the seventies too for Lena. How much do you give consideration to dialogue? I was talking to somebody about dialogue, both dialects in different parts of the country, which this didn't really have to deal with at all, but I was also thinking of just like 1970s dialogue and lingo phrases that you would use back then versus today, which I didn't notice in here. And somebody had told me they found that very distracting and it would kind of date a novel, perhaps, if you did that. And I was wondering, you know, as you were constructing these characters' dialogues and setting it in a particular time period, do you give thought to that? I give a lot of thoughts to that because I also I also love I love language so I love I love idiomatic expressions that enter the language I love vernacular phrases I love words that are sort of made up words that enter the language but I think a little of that goes a long way mm. I, I mean I thought of that in particular in my Hollywood because I had a, a Filipina nanny and I did a lot in her voice and I loved her voice. And it, it was what excited me about, it was one of the things that excited me about her character, but I I found that I could only do a little of it. So I would use her, her made up, her, her sort of idiomatic phrases in dialogue, but I didn't do them at all in, in her consciousness, you know, when I, when I was writing from her point of view, but not in dialogue, I used straight English. Cause I think, I think it can be distracting it, and it can also just be, it can be too rich. If that yeah. makes sense. The language and you're not, you're not getting to the matter thing. Did you read, do you read this out loud to yourself? Yes, definitely. The poet in you comes out. I can tell <laughs> that you studied poetry. Thank you. Super fun. We're, we're all indebted to the poets. Yes. Well, speaking of that, I'm always curious how writers curate their writing lives, especially when they're writing. I mean, you have all of the research 
that you have to do, which is a lot of, I imagine, nonfiction writing. How how else do you go about curating your reading life? I assume, does it still involve poetry? And do you allow yourself to read within your genre while you're writing? Or do those voices distract you and get in your heads? Or t- tell me a little bit about curation of your own reading life. I do. I do. I do. I do all that. Um, I definitely still, I definitely regularly read poetry. I love reading poetry. And I definitely read fiction while I'm writing fiction. Although if, I mean, I think if anything seemed or felt too close, I would put it away. You know, if it, if I just happened on something that I wanted to read and it seemed somehow related to, or to be doing something that, that paralleled what I was doing, I think I would just put it away, just not to be too influenced. But I don't know. A lot of my writing now is, you know, it, it's just the result of being older. So I have a certain amount of professional responsibilities. You know, I'm reading my students' work. I'm reading things to teach, not necessarily just what I'm in the mood for, but but I structure a class. So I'll, I'll be reading things to teach. And then, you know, you're on various prize committees or whatever. But I think it's really important outside that to still read exactly what you want to read. I mean, every once in a while, I'll have a week where I have a lot of obligatory reading. And I'm not a fast reader. I'm a slow reader. So when that happens, I really rebel. And I just, I just find I have to, I have to read something that I'm just drawn to. I'm a slow reader too. It's terrible for this job. I'm a super slow reader. (laughs) I I feel like I'm getting slower too. (laughs) But I think, I feel like I, on the other hand, I feel like I don't think it's necessarily an advantage to be a faster reader because I don't know. I th- I think at least for me, if I pushed myself to be faster, I wouldn't absorb as much. I wouldn't really remember as much. No, that's right. Yeah, my memory isn't getting any better either. I'm getting slower and more forgetful, but that <laughs> comes hum- with the territory. Human, I hear. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, speaking of the poets, I just read advice this week. I don't know if it was advice. Something Robert Frost had once said that, how did it go? It was something like, it should begin in delight and end in wisdom. Mm. And um, and I was thinking if I you know, if you, yeah, and I was thinking, you, I mean, you could probably apply that to novels as well, beginning in delight and ending in wisdom, and which caused me to go back and reread the beginning of this novel again, too, which... I don't know if the word is delight. I mean, the word was a lot of things, but it it's immediately sucked you in. You know, I was. Oh, thank you. That's so I was nice. on Team Walter right, right from the beginning. So. Oh, I'm so pleased to hear you say that. Thank you so much. So you just switched just to to finish up with a little businessy of writing life. So you just lost your editor. It sounds like who's you've been with for a long time. Have you been with the same agent all the way through? Yes, I've been with the same agent and the same editor. The agent is, I'm still with, she hasn't retired. Although she's talking about it from time to time. So I don't know. That's the other peril of growing older is all of these relationships that we've had for decades. Yes. Yes, I know. But in in the case of my editor, I think it's it's for the best. She's moving to a place where she has family and young children and a community. And she's doing it at a time where she's young enough to really fully integrate herself into a different life there, which she wants. And I think, I think that's, that's brave and and smart. Have you noticed for all the, the decades that you've been in this and over the course of the seven novels, I mean, I know there've been so many changes in the industry. Does that, I don't know, make you adjust 
anything in your own writing or is writing just the writing and, and you go about your business and let the world go about its business? I haven't, I haven't changed that much yet. Although I, one wonders if one should, you know, um, I, I, I think I'm going to, I, what's affected me a little bit. I'm not a real social media person. I, I, I do, I'm on Instagram mostly to check up on my children and say, take that picture down. I don't want bathing suits on the Instagram. But aside from that, I have enjoyed, and I do enjoy a couple of sub stacks. And I think I would like to maybe explore that at some point. I don't know, to think about it. That seems like it might be a, a nice thing to do in combination with teaching. Yeah. That could be fun. But I haven't I haven't really done much. I've, I've, I think all I've done so far is think about it a little bit. Just think about the changes that are happening. I mean, I think there is, there is a sense that that people are more involved in these these forms of social media. I always come to them when they're just on their way out. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I never once really... they're passe. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's that's one is destined to. Somebody told me all the rage now for selling books is TikTok, and I, uh, <laughs> they said, well, that's how all the books get sold, and. <laughs> Who was I was talking to some older writer and she's like this then this business isn't for me anymore if that's the way so I'm not well, doing that I'm not sure I I would have to see the TikToks I haven't really I haven't seen any book talks yet I've seen other TikToks but I haven't seen any book talks Yeah that's how my 22 year old gets all of her reading material is TikTok crazes and I'm like well maybe maybe this world is not for me anymore I don't know <laughs> It's only so I, many crazes you can jump on to I think people still talk about books, though, among themselves. Yeah, I mean, I would say one of the side benefits of the pandemic, I suppose, is this rebuilding of community around bookstores. Like, I've, I feel like independent bookstores have kind of had a little renaissance lately and people finding other different ways to gather to talk about books. These silent book clubs are taking off. Oh, what's um, a silent book club? That's so my, my daughter loves these. So you meet in a bar or a restaurant or whatever, and there's a lot of people, like 30 or 40 people, and mingle a bit. And then they ring a bell, and you silently read whatever book you brought with you for an hour. Well, I love that. <laughs> and then the bell rings again, and then you talk to each other about what you've been reading. So oh, that I love you, that. That's lovely. Uh, you get introduced to a lot of different types of books, but then you don't have to read books that you're not interested in reading because time is short. and. Sort of like study hall in the old days. Yeah, like study hall in the old days. I yeah, that's lovely. I said any way you can get books out there is a good way yeah, to get books out sure. there. So well, yeah, that's, that's exciting. Well, did there is there advice that we should have talked about that we didn't? I know you've been teaching at UCLA for a long time. Or is, is there stuff you tell your students that you think bears repeating? Oh, there's so much stuff I tell my students, but it's mostly off the cuff. Um, I don't know. I think I think the main thing is just to do it, you know, just to do it every day. And I try to tell my students to sort of judge, judge it less and assess it less and rank it less and just write more. Yeah. Turning um, off the inner critic, the inner yeah. editor. Yeah. I, I have a writer friend, Ian Lee, and we, we made a vow, I think five years ago to live more, write more <laughs> and mm. just worry about it less. Yeah. There's always time for the editor down the road. Yeah. I think that's right. Keep him outside the door for as long as you possibly can. I like that. Advice. The more you write, the more you solve your own problems. Did this book change your mind about anything? Did you learn anything that you came away from saying you see the world a little differently? I feel I learned a lot from this book. Um, but I guess I learned a lot 
I think I learn a lot by the end from every book. Did it change your mind about anything? Mm, it changed my mind about I, a lot about the way we the way we treat mental health. And you know, I, I'd gone into it with sort of the the assumptions that of my generation, just that these big institutions were were bad and and harmful. And I had a nurse ratchet image in my mind. And then I I met a lot of these nurses who'd worked in this mental health hospital that who'd worked in Norwalk their whole careers, starting at eighteen. And some of them, even though they're retired, are still volunteering at the hospital and and hearing their stories and and. I don't know. I th- I think that there were a lot of people who were who were helped a lot. So it 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 made me it made me understand how much were were affected. It, it an endlessly interesting question. I think that say Ishiguro tackles a lot in his earlier work, especially was the effect of art on culture. And I think I ended up seeing one flew over the cuckoo's nest with a different point of view. And, and then I went on to read that many, many psychiatrists who work in, in hospitals feel that that film, that one film really hampered their ability to do their best work. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a sort of cultural mistrust came into play. And I, I, I don't know, I think that, that that was that was one takeaway. Of course, there's a lot of other things you learn, small things. Yeah, we live in such a nuanced and complicated world, obviously. I'm just going to say obvious things now, but yeah. And bringing a level of uh, depth and complexity to situations that seem black and white on the surface. And, you know, the more you dive in, the more you realize every single one of those seemingly easily uh, judged (laughs) situations has so much nuance and complexity below it. So yeah. Yes. And then then writing about, about, you know, everybody in about young, young adults, you see the amount of of shame that they're dealing with and you feel it because you wrote the scene, but at the same time, you're also seeing it from a later point of view, from a wiser, you know, and you're not them anymore. You're not them. And you, you also wish you could, you see how much shame directs people or hampers people and you wish you could remove it. Right. Putting these dear people you love in peril over and over again, which yeah. is the writer's job, but. Well, we can follow you. You have a great website and there are great videos of you just giving good writing advice out there here and there and and talk. So I'll direct everybody to your website and maybe I won't direct them to the Instagram. I don't know. If you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to update the website too, but but um, I shall. Are you doing paperback events for this book in the area in LA? I'm not sure. I've been talking to Cavalier Books, but I, I'm not sure whether I'm going to do, I haven't set, we haven't set a date yet. Okay. And I'm going to be at the LA Festival of Books. Okay. We'll, we'll link to that. Okay. Good. Great. Perfect. Mona thank Simpson, so this was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so, so nice much. To talk to you again. Thank you, Mona. That was Mona Simpson. The book is Commitment. It is out and available now in paperback. In addition to our Patreon page, you can find Mona's book up on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Using the affiliate page helps out independent bookstores and it helps the show out a little bit. You can find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. You'll find her book, other books from past guests, books Barbara and I recommend up there. 
You can always visit our websites in addition to the Patreon page. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is Marie Stone, two R's and Marie.com. And you can uh, find the show's website, writersonwriting.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. Our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find his music up on Spotify under Just My Type. Lots of great typewriter music up there. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.